coach Greg Calhoun. It's a pleasure to have you on number 33, episode number 33 of the podcast here. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here, Jake. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Yeah. How um, how has your year been? And and you guys are starting football now. Now some training stuff. I saw some guys out there doing mm-hmm. some work. Yeah, we're, um, I mean, it's kind of, you know, this whole year has just been obviously different, but, so it's been very unique. So it's, it has a lot of opportunity to do some things off-season per se that we kind of normally don't get to do. Um, but, you know, we're doing Wednesdays, Saturdays, really not too many Saturdays right now. Um, but we're, I have an opportunity to work two days throughout the week mm-hmm. um, um, to, you know, get some things done in terms of really just strength and conditioning and, you know, agility, speed training, those type of things. And then also, I'm, you know, obviously I'm with track also. And we're, you know, same deal. We're working throughout the week and um, getting prepared for the spring season with track as well. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. what you're mostly focusing mm-hmm. on is track right now? Yeah, yeah. So splint, splint duties. Um, that's the, I think that's the unique part about how this year has been kind of structured. It's kind of like you're actually working two sports at the same time. Right. Know? So yeah. There's so. there's some overlap going on. Some overlap, right, now. right, right, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. I think there's a basketball game tonight. Cesare is gonna be doing the basketball game. I'm excited to watch even yeah. though we, we can't be there in person. Right, um, right. Two games two tonight. Games, we yeah. have J V and varsity. Mm-hmm. Over at and, Calvert, uh, right? Calvert Hall, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So at least we have something to watch. Some yeah. of our guys. I'm I actually have a bunch of those basketball guys in my class. So mm-hmm. now that I know them on a personal level, right. I'm excited to see them play. Yeah, no, definitely that connection there with your students when they're athletes, you know, outside of, I think that's always huge and key. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely fun. Um, so let, let's maybe start out talking about the football season. Even though it was cut mm-hmm. short this year, you guys mm-hmm. still got a couple games in and you got some training in. And we, right. we definitely have some players out there. Yeah. Um, and we're building, and you guys are building that program up. I share an office with Coach Emila, and, mm-hmm. and I so I get the lowdown every so often yeah. on the on the football stuff. But maybe we could start talking about the program right now and where the football team is and where we're moving in the future. Hopefully, when when we're beyond COVID. Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, I definitely think uh, COVID present you know obviously a unique situation as we all know, but I also think it was a uh, it presented a unique opportunity for us this year. Um, the last few years, you know, obviously Coach Bach, you know, just, you know, coming in, you know, as a new coach, you know, and trying to establish his culture, his, you know, his program itself, um, you know, obviously faced the challenges and, you know, obviously Gilman has had the success in the past and, you know, so you kind of go through that transition of power per se. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think we did things the right way in making that transition, but, <clears throat> you know, faced his challenges and, um, you know, this year presented a unique opportunity where we've had a lot of young guys on our team which, you know, I would say last year, you know, we, we know it was the games we were in and that, you know, that was the, you know, really the challenge. And, you know, so it was just guys being so young and, you know, and this year gave us the opportunity to get some experience for those younger guys, mm-hmm. but on the same time, allow us to spend more time on focusing and developing our guys without so much worry about, hey, we're trying to compete for a championship right now and just really just working on them as individuals and making sure that they're where we want them to be. So it was almost like a, I don't know, uh, it's kind of interesting because my, my college program had a, a reset kind of like this uh, a couple of years ago. Obviously, it wasn't COVID or uh, where the football program was shut down and they brought it back. Mm-hmm. But in that time that it was down, they was actually still working at, you know, those type of things. And um, mm-hmm. anyway, but it just allowed, you know, us to kind of work and focus on those things. But also to have some success and, you know, I, I think, you know, to build some confidence for those young guys. And give them the opportunity, you know, to have some success as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you say you're, you guys are developing these younger mm-hmm. athletes. Right. What are some things you're doing in the off season? I know 
I've seen you and Coach mm. Emla out there doing certain drills with right, them. Right. But if I'm a young football player at Gilman right now, what are some things that I could be doing to make sure that I make the gains I need to make Man. when I when I come back next year in the fall? I mean, I think the biggest thing, you know, and, and we talk from a football perspective, but overall, you know, at Gilman, we always encourage you to you know participate in other sports, you know, so not just football. So, you know, kind of get some cross training per se. So obviously we always encourage our guys to do other sports. Uh, with that being said, <clears throat> you know, if you're not doing another sport in that time, definitely taking advantage. We, we're giving the guys workouts every week um, that they can do on their home at home. If they can get to a gym, they can do it. Obviously, we don't have access to the weight room right now. Um, and obviously, we're um, allowing the opportunity to come out and work out with us, you know, once or twice a week. And then, um, you know, obviously, um, groups, different position groups allow them um, are allowed to, you know, get together, work together and, you know, do some individual drills and workouts and those type of things, you know, as anyone does. So, in terms of, you know, just getting prepared for the offseason, I think just continue to just work, you know, in terms of your strength and speed and conditioning and, you know, just essentially keeping yourself in shape and, um, and, and fair, you know, when, you know, when things essentially go back to normal when we're, you know, getting closer to our football season later on, especially the offseason during the summer per se. Right. That's probably the hardest part for these guys is the weight room because the weight room yeah. is so important for football. Yes. Finding yes. some things to do, maybe finding a weight room to go to, but mm. – Doing some body weight stuff and some right, speed, right. strength, agility uh, right. with your with your own, whatever mm-hmm. you can find. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you can push up some sit-ups or, you know, like the biggest thing you can do, you can run, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, those are, you know, three things you can do. You know, you can find a chair, a bench or anything and, you know, do bench dips. So, you know, kind of be, you know, be creative. Yeah. You know, and I, which I think, you know, we're at Gilman, so I think a lot of our boys are very innovative in, in those type of things and, you know, we provide them some things, but at the same time, you know, like you said, with things kind of being the way they are right now, we have to, you know, be even more innovative. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. So, yeah. I think uh, I think the creativity part. I was telling some of the lacrosse guys, yeah. like, yes, things are shut down. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're not playing. Yes, we're only right. allowed certain hours where we can practice, mm-hmm. but. You've gotta you've gotta find some ways to get out there, get stronger, faster, or it's not gonna happen. You can't just wait around. No, it's, it, no sports. So you know they're unique within. You know you can't just in, in general you can't just turn the you know the light switch on and turn it off and think it's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to put the time and effort into it, just like with a lot of other things in life. And so, um, yeah, no, you just gotta be innovative and creative, and you know just you know. And at the end day, I think the key words you said that you just gotta want to. Also, you gotta really want to you know do this, and you know. Um, you know, I can give you the, I can give you, you know, everything that you need, but you, you got to take advantage and actually use it, you know? So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, definitely guys definitely got to, you know, want to, and I think that's the part also in this transition, you know, the culture of the guys has changed a little bit in terms of the, you know, the chemistry and, you know, the attitude more or less towards that, um, mindset. Mm-hmm. When, when <clears throat> coach Bach came in and you were here the year prior, prior to, to him yeah. mm-hmm. and I came in with him, so I wasn't, I wasn't around for that. Right, right. Uh, transition, but how how has the culture changed, and what are some things you guys focus on mm-hmm. on the football team in terms of preparing these guys and rebuilding the program a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard with any program, you know, from you know high school, college, you know, professional sports. You know, when you've had success in the past, you you kind of just expect it to happen, you know, regardless of you know who's changing in terms of uh, the, as a coach, as the head coach of the program. So, I mean, I think you know one, you know, the staff, you know, we've. <clears throat> continue to develop our staff as a whole and at the same time also you know just developing that culture and also that I think that trickles down into our players themselves when they see that staff you know in terms of the jail of the staff and how that goes down with the um, guys and obviously 
in my first year here, obviously, um, Coach Holly was the head coach here. So definitely different in terms of, you know, operational things. And but at the same time, you know, it's just it's just unique within itself. And so that adjustment, um, you know, like I said, was some challenges in terms of that. But at the same time, it's just the the attitude of what this program has been before. You know, they expect us to win. They expect us to be successful. So it's it's kind of hard when you're not winning initially. Mm-hmm. And but at the same time, that's kind of with anything. You know, it's it's that you know that that uphill grind, that uphill battle at first. And you know, then once you get that success, you kind of see the you know the benefits of all that work and. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that you did, so <clears throat> I think, and that's the part. We just just continue to be consistent with our message and um, making sure that the guys are, you know, just just you know sticking to the grind every day, you mm-hmm. know, and not just giving up, you know, easily. So, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. football is one of those sports that it it is such a grind. I remember playing mm-hmm. growing up, and it's because you start. You, I mean, it's a full year thing because mm-hmm. in the off season you're always lifting, right. you're always trying to get bigger, faster, stronger, right. and it starts middle of the summer in the heat, right? Yeah, yeah. I remember mi- mid-July, yeah. August, we're in yeah. training. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a full-time commitment. You have to be you have to be all in on football. Yeah, no, you you do. Uh because I mean, I think the physical aspect of it is, you know, obviously huge and like you so you said like the weight room and, you know, that's that, you know, that that aspect within itself and then obviously the conditioning. Um it's not like we're running a marathon in terms of of running, but in terms of conditioning, you know, you have to be conditioned for the sport within itself. So, mm-hmm. uh, no, definitely a year, year, year round deal. Um, but I think also, like I said, we talk about encouraging kids to do other sports. I think some of the other sports allow them some training and, you know, cross training, excuse me, which I think is always huge for any athlete, you know, any sport, you know. So, you know, with football, where, you know, we don't do what, you know, me being from the South, we don't do a traditional spring football, so I'm used to even having spring football, mm-hmm. and you know where you take two to three weeks or 15 days total, whatever you know, and get some spring training in per se. You, you may compete against someone else, you may not, you know, but it's really an opportunity to develop yourself and your team. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, so you're not definitely as a year-round sporting commitment yeah. though. So yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. from uh, being from Alabama, was football. <laughs> Just a way of life for you yeah. growing up. Was it twenty four seven football? Yeah. Eat, drink, sleep. Yeah, yeah football. No. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people. The first thing they assume when they say, "All right, you're from Alabama, so you're an Alabama fan." And I'm like, no. And then, they, oh, you're Auburn. And it's like, no. Um, obviously, went to UAB, uh, which is an extension of University of Alabama. But uh, I, anyway, so obviously, UAB fan. I actually grew up a Florida fan. Um, love Steve Spurrier. Um, but my hometown specifically, in terms, like you said, just the way of life, you know, we had a very successful program at Benjamin Russell High School. Uh, my head coach, uh, Willie Carl Martin, actually coached on Saban's staff when Saban got hired at Alabama. He was there from 2015, uh, excuse me, 2007 to 2015 when he retired. And, you know, so it definitely was a way of life. Uh, you know, like one of the people who actually influenced me was um, my brother and my family members. They all like I remember like the first, you know, when I was five years old, I remember just watching them play because he was a senior in high school. Um, I actually had their highlights tape, you know, when I was a kid. I just like consistently watched that. Like I knew his team, you know, almost as good as I knew my own teammates. And, you know, some of these guys were people I had never met personally, but from a small town. So. You, you, you hear stories, you know, it's that tradition and that pride in the program. So it's definitely is a way of life down there. So it's essentially, it's a religion. You know, mm-hmm. people say it, it, it is a religion. Um, but at the same time, it's obviously, it's the whole development of, a, of, a, of a, you know, for me as a boy, as I'm into a man, mm-hmm. into an adult, you know, responsibilities, the attitude, uh, discipline, accountability. It just, it gives you a lot of, you know, great qualities. Um, specifically the position I play offensive line, you know, a lot of people, 
play, you know, they're the skill guys, the receivers, the quarterbacks, all those guys get the glory. And mm -hmm. even if you're on defense, you get to hit people, you know, all those things in the offensive line, we're kind of like the unsung heroes. So mm -hmm. you have, you know, four of the guys, you know, on the offensive line with you who you battle with every day. Y'all kind of understand each other a little more different than, you know, the rest of the units on the field. So, I mean, you know, football within itself, you know, down there and that connection to that, all those things just, you know, build upon those, you know, characteristics. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And, I was looking into what was the high school called again? Where you? Oh, uh, Benjamin Russell High School. Terrell Owens. Owens. Yeah, T.O. Yeah, yeah T.O. Did you grow up watching T.O.? Yeah. So uh, T.O. Obviously, like I said, you know, it's my hometown. A lot of my family, you know, still there to the day. You know, uh, always been there. Uh, so you know, we, uh, you know, family, you know, close. Uh, my dad actually wanted to. Touchdown celebrations, he did early on in his career. My dad actually showed it to him. No way. Because uh, he went to uh, he went to high school. He was best friends with one of my cousins, and um, my cousin ended up owning the detail car wash, whatever. So he you know come back, you know get his car washed, do those type of things, hang out with with the community. And anyway, my dad ended up showing him like a dance there, and so he ended up doing those. So that was always you know neat to you know see that, and then obviously who he kind of you know developed into as a player mm -hmm. over the years. So yeah, Tio, yeah, so Tio was definitely the big name there in terms of anyone from there. And then obviously Benjamin Russell, the name itself for the high school actually came from Russell Athletics. So Russell Athletics, when you see Russell Athletics, you're seeing Benjamin Russell. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I did not know that. Yeah, so it was actually started in my hometown in the early 1900s, you know, sports of athletic wear per se. Um, so yeah, so that's the, you know, the brand there. It's kind of like Under Armour here in Baltimore. It's yeah. big time. Yeah, it it's is. It's big time. Yeah. Well, that's another thing about building a team and a program mm -hmm. and a culture is when you see guys like it sounds like your brother mm -hmm. and you yeah. see T.O. Mm -hmm. and they're doing mm -hmm. big things and right. you're and you're what were you maybe in middle school yeah so so when T.O. actually started playing I was uh like fourth fifth grade I say fourth fifth grade when he actually got into the NFL uh my brother and him was actually actor T.O. and uh but then I had a cousin uh Seneca Knight who actually played for Gremlin for uh, legendary coach Eddie George Robinson. Mm -hmm. um, so Grammar State University, then he ended up playing with the uh, San Diego Chargers, and then he played a ring of football, which I, you know, later on played as well. Um, and then, you know, just a lot of other people in my, you know, in my community who, you know, played, you know, college level professional. Uh, when I was in middle school, we actually won a state championship when I was in middle school. And that team ahead of us, like, it was just so many talented athletes. So, you know, for us, we feel like there's probably one of the best teams from the area. And with that being said, you know, those are the people, you know, we looked up to and just want to carry on that tradition. And um, we had, a, I mean, I say we had a great program. It's, you know, one of the things I kind of, you know, I tell Coach Bach, I um, tell some of the other coaches, I, you know, I tell a lot of people, you know, the, you know, what we did as a system, we ran it from the time I was in middle school up until my senior year. Hmm. You know, when I say even playbook, you know, those things were done from middle school up. And obviously, you know, middle school, you're not going to give them that elaborate of plays, but there was things we did as a core, and then, you know, it transcended as we... The same blueprint. Yeah, same up. blueprint. And that blueprint was started, like, in the early, I think the late 80s, early 90s, with a coach who my actual head coach was an assistant for, uh, Steve Savarese, who's um, the director of the Athletic Association in Alabama. So he kind of came in there, laid that groundwork and foundation, and it led to years of success. You know, had years of success prior to, before, but it led to those years of success, those the dominant years, um, you know, from that time frame, even up to when I graduated. And then we had like two or three years where it was a re rebuilding process. My head coach left, got the job at Alabama, and there was two to three years there rebuilding process. We had another great Hall of Fame legendary coach come in, um, took him some time to get it going where he wanted it. And then he, he left it on a high note. Same thing. He just left, uh, I think, in 2018. So kind of same, you know, situation here. You know, just go through that transition. And then once you 
get that foundation laid, things just kind of fall into place from there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then w- was Willie Carl, was he a head coach or was he? So he was the head coach at uh, my high school from 2000, 2001 to 2006, essentially the season, and he left in February, May. I think it was February of 2007 after saving got higher. Um, but he was a longtime assistant coach there at Benjamin Russell for, I think, from the 1980s, I think, or late 80s. I can't mm-hmm. remember the exact time frame. I know it was 20-plus years he was there. And he he was a uh, you know a legend within himself. Um, um, was the first African American offered a scholarship at the University of Alabama um, when Bear Bryant was the head head coach there. He actually told Bear Bryant no, um, and and you know that was always just this unique story that he did that. Um, and this was obviously during a time of you know the civil rights era and um, kind of that whole you know segregation and you know being one of the first African Americans in the Southeast Conference at the time. You know where blacks at that time wasn't seen on the on football teams at that time in the area in the, in the time frame and so he didn't go he kind of like he didn't want to be the first one you know he you know yes of course he wanted to play there mm-hmm. but then it was like I, I don't want to face those challenges that those people faced during that time frame and so he ended up going to northeastern Oklahoma and played there um and then ended up going to the CFL um actually got drafted by the NFL but ended up going to the CFL you know he, you know for him he came from a poor family so he got drafted by the CFL. He took that money and you know and and went and won I think three or four great cups hmm. um, with Edmonton Eskimos and so he won there and came back and started coaching and you know helping young men and you know helping you know give opportunities and you know and kind of kind of goes into my you know whole identity and who you know I want reason why I wanted to be a teacher and a coach you know in terms of just wanting to help you know give kids opportunities and you know give access to those resources you know and and, and being that resource for them. So yeah. So it sounds like you've had some amazing coaches and role models mm-hmm. and people to look up up to in yeah. in your entire playing career. Right. Who what do you think some of the commonalities or characteristics of these great coaches and leaders? What is it about them that made you want to mm-hmm. get into coaching and yeah, it's kind of work with kids. Yeah, I think the interesting part, like I never thought about teaching or coaching. Um, you know, they, they you know wanted to play professional football and. My mom always told me for years, like she's like, you always, you're, I was always great with kids in general, you know, and you know, even when I was a kid, I just always loved playing with other kids, and you know, it was I got older, I was trying to mentor other kids, so I think it was just something natural. But at the same time, in terms of influence, obviously, Coach Martin was definitely one of them. I had a few great teachers, you know, along the way that you know helped me within my process that you know I looked up to, and then obviously the coaches, the things that I saw out of them consistently was one being consistent, just working hard. Um, I think just the relationships, you know, you build, you know, with kids and with coaches. I think that was huge because, you know, you, you have someone who you relate to or someone that you feel like you can be transparent with or open with. And, you know, you just have open conversation and, you know, uh, people that are about family. You know, all those things were the things that, you know, I saw, you know, that made me want to be a coach, you know, and made me want to be a teacher in general. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's really about the relationships and the connection with, you know, other people and being able to allow them opportunity to be successful but just being able to give them the resources and um those connections and any anything that it takes to you know get them to where they want to be you know allow them to live their dreams their goals and i think that was my part like you know i had my dreams and goals and i feel like those people along the way were the people that allowed me and helped me get there Mm -hmm. yeah you can cut a lot of the process out for for kids mm-hmm. by just sharing all the information, information that you right? know and, yeah. and things that you learn from the people that mm-hmm. you watch growing up. You mm-hmm. can just, it's like almost a shortcut for, for your players now. 
Right, yeah, and that's the <clears throat> and you it's funny you talking about the process of things you don't know. Like I just remember my recruiting process, like there was things I knew, like Coach Martin gave us a lot of information when it came to that. It was some things that just didn't stick initially. And I just remember going through my recruiting process and I had coaches that I told no in terms of I'm not coming there, I'm going here. And, you know, I still have a relationship with them to this day, even though I didn't play for them. Mm-hmm. And but the thing was, I, I I was very receptive of the information they gave me and the things they helped me with in my process because it was things I learned from different coaches, you know, throughout my process. And, you know, so, yeah, so that's, that's kind of, you know, it's like, no, nah, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be able to, you know, help others, you know, because, you know, uh, you know, honestly, I was my like so I had a cousin, you know, Seneca, um, who, you know, played at Grambling. His process was, you know, he graduated high school in 96 and I graduated in 2007. So, you know, that's a 10 years different there. And um, so the process was a little different when he went through recruiting versus when I went through recruiting. And, um, you know, in my in my immediate household, I was the first one to go to college. I mean, my mom actually was in college at the time when I was in high school. So, you know, she knew that process a little bit. And she went to a community college, which, you know, obviously a little different there. But, um, you know, so I didn't really have a lot of knowledge of those things. My family did, you know, had a few people in my family here and there that, you know, went to college. But, you know, in terms of this whole recruiting and, you know, being this high profile athlete, you know, it was definitely different, you know. So um, so definitely, you know, took that information that I got from others. And, and like I said, that's the same thing, you know, I always wanted to do was give it to others as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is the recruiting process like right now for for football and maybe how has how, how does recruiting change in football i know a lot i know uh, a lot about lacrosse recruiting yeah. and that for sure has changed since of the course. time i was right in high school it's changed but i'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure it's similarly think, changed for football yeah and i think the biggest thing is uh we all know is uh show, social media social media has became one of the biggest avenues for recruitment in regards to um, coaches just have access to kids. Um, kids have access to coaches. I think that's the other thing. Um, and, I'm, you know, we all, like, huddle now. You know, that's another thing, like, technology, you know. Um, obviously, as it always advances throughout the years, I think, in recruiting in terms of with, with football in general, um, you know, kids have access to coaches with huddle. No, with, not huddle, but with, uh, you know, Twitter, more or less, social media in general. And at the same time, being able to use huddle, um, to really promote yourself. So all those things, you know, I think is the biggest thing that I've noticed that obviously changed where, you know, I, I remember days, you know, you had to make your own highlight tape or you had a coach make it for you and then you had to actually mail it to someone. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of now, you could just, you can literally go to the staff directory and, you know, pull up the coach's information and go to the recruiting coordinator and find his email and maybe the position you play and or whoever recruits your area. And you can actually send that information yourself and just reach out, you know, in an email, or essentially, you can just send your profile and your information on Twitter now. Do you do guys just tweet their mm-hmm. highlight tape at coaches and yeah, see what happens? It's very common. It's really? very common. I'll say this: a lot of kids underutilize it. Um, you know, we do a great job here. Coach Bach does a great job with our recruiting and um, in terms of make sure our guys get an exposure and those type of things. But I've been, you know, I'll be honest with you, I've been places where, and I and I still, and I, I'll be honest, I have kids I help now from other places. You know, they may reach out to me, you know, when, you know, they feel like, okay, I got relations and connections with certain coaches or whatever the case may be. But they understand I know I went through the process before. But with that being said, no, the kids really underutilize that a lot now. And, you know, it's like, no, definitely take advantage of it because you have direct access. Now, obviously, there's regulation in terms of when coaches can contact you back or whatever based on your classification. And obviously, there's this extended debt period at one point in time here with this whole COVID thing. And Mm -hmm. so... Um, but yeah, no, it's definitely you know kids definitely do use that. Like you, a coach will post something on Twitter, 
and you literally have under that comment and all the comments are kids posting their GPA, their uh, huddle link, wow. their transcript, every, you know, everything. You know, if you if you have that information, you know, literally put it in your Twitter header and, you know, it's useful. You know, coaches and coaches actually go searching social media for players. Hmm. Yeah. So that's the biggest change, I think, is, is the social media in that aspect of it. Yeah. Because. I've heard before coaches talk to high school players mm-hmm. just from my experience mm-hmm. in lacrosse maybe and mm-hmm. say, you know, you want to clean up your social media. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have anything yes. on there that's going to be a, a red flag. Right, right, yeah, right. But I did, I've never heard of put your GPA in your Twitter bio yeah. and put your highlight yeah. tape in there as well. Yeah, uh, it's, your, it's, your, it's, your, it's just like a resume. Yeah. You know, you, you use it. I think uh, it's, it's weird. You know, I remember it was 2009. I took uh, – my education class was teaching in technology. Twitter had just came out. Mm-hmm. And my first Twitter account was for this education class. But we talked about, you know, how would it be used in education in general? And then to see now we're on Zoom. But, you know, someone took advantage of that and said, you know what, I'm going to take this and this is going to be my profile. I'm going to put my information here. This is the school I play at. This is my <laughs> core GPA, my overall GPA, whatever. This is my ACT, uh, ACT SAT score. This is my huddle highlight, uh, highlight link. Um, this is that information that you need, you know, for about me. I have it all right here for you, Coach. This is my name. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. And boom. And, you know, I can just share it, you know, this that easily. Because obviously I can go follow a college coach and he can follow me back, you know. So it's, it's no harm in that, you know. So it, it just made, the, you know, made things more open. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I remember just, you know, you know, you still do now, you know, text coaches, um, players still, you know, have communication like that with coaches. But, you know, at one point in time, coaches could actually direct me. They still can. They kind of, you know, change the rules a little bit at certain times they can use to it because obviously, you know, the NCAA had to kind of catch up with the technology. But there was a point in time where coaches was kind of like that was an avenue where they could just contact a kid. DM through but Twitter. Because it, it wasn't a rule. You know, right. it wasn't in the rules yet. You know, and then eventually it was like, oh, you can't text kids or you can't, you know, DM them on Twitter or Instagram or either Facebook or whatever, you know. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, no, it definitely is a opportunity to, you know, take advantage of, though. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. sure coaches are always looking for those avenues that mm-hmm. haven't – they don't have any yeah. rules yet. Let's see if we can make this work. Got to take advantage of yeah. Right, to. yeah. It's part of the game, right? It's part of the game. It's just like anything in life, like, you know, just being innovative, you mm-hmm. know, just finding – and that's the thing. You're always trying to – one up, you know, so kind of, you know, got to find out, you know, what's a way that I can, you know, be better than my opponent or, you know, my competitor, whoever that is. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the ways that I kind of had the idea that I wanted to, to get you on here. Yeah. Well, number one, because I haven't really seen you or caught up with right, you right, that right, much yeah. this year, but you, you've you liked a few of the path to follow things that I post on Twitter. Yeah. I, and I just think Twitter is a, mm-hmm. an amazing social media platform mm-hmm. and I, I actually like it more so than really anything else because because yeah. I've tagged a few like mm-hmm. authors mm-hmm. and you know John Gordon we were right. talking about John Gordon right, right. John Gordon right yeah previous episodes I'm, I'm gonna tag them just to see if they because they have yeah you know it's a uh, um you know it's it's very you know I you and I you know we both college um you know Facebook was the big thing initially years ago when I first went to college, and then it transitioned to uh, Instagram, then Snap. You know, you have Snapchat also, and um, then obviously Twitter also. Um, I think the thing I like about Twitter the most is like it's that direct connection with people. Like you know, Facebook. Not to say you can't direct con- um, contact people, but like when you have high profile people, certain people you can't get that direct contact. With. It's like a business page or something like a celebrity page or something of that nature. 
Um, but with Twitter, you know, they may not, you know, like you said, you can tag them, mm-hmm. and they may respond to that, you know. Might as well do it, right? right? It's, 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 yeah, it may be a, you know, a shot in the, you know, in the air, but, you know, who, it's, it's one of those things where, I, you know, for me, I, I was surprised that certain people that follow me back, you know, and it's, you know, sometimes it's just off a retweet that I retweeted of their tweet or, you know, or, yeah. whatever, or something in connection with them. So, um, but it, it's, it, I think it's, a, you know, definitely is something that can be used, you know, networking wise in general, you know, you know, obviously as, you know, we, we teach young men here in terms of their growth and development, but it's an opportunity to network with certain people. Um, and like I said, you just use it, you know, you can use it, you know, to do whatever you want to do in a, in a positive manner. So obviously it has its negatives. Mm-hmm. As everything does, but at the same time, when it's using a positive way, it's, it's definitely great. And um, that's actually what my wife does now. Uh, she created her own business two years ago, and largely a part of it is social media. She literally creates, you know, graphics, and um, it's all about marketing and how to use social media to market yourself. Oh wow! So yeah. So what is she? Um, what what platforms does she focus on, or, or really all of them? All of them, really. Yes. Yeah. Social, uh, Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, Snapchat, you know, she, I, I'm not the expert in it, you know, I yeah. know a lot about it, but at the same time, she definitely has her ways of focusing and engaging, uh, engagement through it, um, you know, so it, it's funny because she did it with her basketball team that she coaches, and it was just, you know, it helped with the recruiting, you know, we were just talking about recruiting, and that's what it helped with it, and like, they, yeah, they had good players, mm-hmm. but it also helped with the marketing of their players and individuals in their program, mm-hmm. you know, where it actually got it to a national you know, ranking, you know, in terms of, yes, they had the talent and you know, it was good, but at the same time, they got the exposure, you know, at the national level from ESPN, um, women's side, and from um, Geico, you know, which, you know, you have the Geico National Championship, so these things, you know, allowed them avenues of, you know, people seeing them and say, oh, okay, like, you know, we follow them now, we see what they're doing, and, um, and in terms of her personal business, people, you know, when they started recognizing she was the one creating the content that was on there in terms of the graphics and different things, I'm like, oh, wow, well, you know, will you do this for me? You know, so she's had an actual couple of clients, you know, from, you know, college back on football programs and basketball programs that actually have, you know, brought her board to do certain things for them. Mm, and, that's um, awesome. and obviously, you know, everyday, you know, individual businesses and those type of things. So, yeah. yeah. Well, the way I think about a lot of social media is like the, it's like a lottery. Like you tweet something out. Yeah. Someone <laughs> someone might see it. You don't know. You don't right. know who their who followers are right. if they retweet it. Mm hmm. Like, yeah. There you go. Yeah, I think it's a little better than the lottery, though. Yeah. Yeah. A little, a little chances are a little bit higher than <laughs> yeah, the lottery. Yeah, yeah. I think the ratio is better there, and it's free. I think that's the other thing. It's free, man. And I think it's free marketing. You know, you just see this whole. Uh, I think when I go to look at my newspaper or anything, you have to pay for subscriptions now. But you know, social media is free. Like you yeah. have to pay for. Like yeah, they put ads and promotions and stuff in there, but it's that's free fine. though. Yeah. Yeah, it's free. Free marketing is all it is. Get all my news mm-hmm. and I get all my updates mm-hmm. and sc- like score Scores. updates mm-hmm. if you're trying to follow a game. Everything's right, right there on Twitter. And that's the thing. Like even, um, you know, being from Alabama, I've been in some rural places. Uh, actually, I was at a rural school before I came to Gilman. Um, you know, like you have acts, like you can actually, like you said, you can give news and sports updates, any of those things in general, you know, and it's all free, you know, so mm-hmm. it's, it's more accessible in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if someone tweets a highlight tape mm-hmm. of them playing football mm-hmm. and they make they make a bunch of good plays in the short highlight tape, whatever right. it is, mm-hmm. will a coach, will a college coach recruit that player without coming to see them in person? Or does it, do most coaches have to see you play in person before um, they do anything? I think I think the when you think about this year within itself, you know, coaches, you know, that's kind of all they had to rely on. Yeah. You know, this year um, is you know social media or videos or huddle links that was posted on social media if a coach was sending to them directly. Um, so, 
I would say yes. I mean, you know, they. I think they still will come see them. It it, it kind of just sparks that interest, though. It's just like anything you do, you know, something sparks your interest, so you you know you kind of you know start following up on it a little more. But it definitely allows them an opportunity to, um, you know, engage more in that player and say, all right, you know, I, I like what I see so far. Now let me kind of follow up on it. And so, mm-hmm. in terms of coming to see, I definitely think they will always continue to come see kids and. Those things, because I think you know they want to have that firsthand information from their coaches, their teachers, right. uh, administration throughout the school, those type of things. So that definitely will still continue to make that um, that effort there. But you know that it definitely allows them that opportunity to you know spark that interest, though. Especially with a sport like football, size is so important. Like, I feel like if mm-hmm. I'm a coach, I want to see I want to see you in person. I want to see how big right, you right, actually right, are right, because right. guys guys exaggerate yeah. their height and weight oh, all the time. Gosh. Yeah. Now you we, we it was it's funny because it's you know follow a lot of coaches and, and you know just a network uh, social network and, and coaching in the coaching world too you see kids who post that they got offers that really don't have offers so it is a negative light to it and obviously like you said the size variables mm-hmm. of kids you know post oh i'm six two and they're really like maybe six foot you know i think we all did that you know in terms of size on our you know charts you know in, on the roster and those type of things but you know it definitely like i said it just sparks that interest though when kids post their offers mm-hmm. and who they've who they've gotten um, offers from mm-hmm. already. I've seen that before. Is, yeah. it, is the benefit to that to show other coaches that, hey, you know, these schools are looking at me and you're not, there's yeah. no reason why you shouldn't yeah, yeah. be, right? Yeah, I think it's a, a little, I think it's a positive and a negative thing, you know, yeah. at times. Uh, obviously, the positive interview, like you just said, uh, other schools take notice. Um, you'll be surprised a lot of schools. Um, you will have a kid sometimes, you, you as a coach, you're telling them, like, hey, you need to take a look at this kid. He's great. And one of the first things they'll ask you is say, well, who else has offered him? You know, those type of things. So it's like, if you're going to offer him, just offer him. Or if you, you know, really like him or interested. So, but usually, you know, when that first school pulls the trigger or a couple of schools pull the trigger here and there, um, a lot of schools kind of, you know, they kind of, you know, do the same thing. And so I think that is the positive. But when you do see a kid getting recruited and you see other schools are interested, no regardless of the um, level, I think it's helpful. Um, but then sometimes you have some kids, you know, I think it's, you know, I think it's just something with them, self-assurance in terms of like, you know, they kind of just say, all right, this is who I am. It makes them feel good about themselves. With It is a positive thing, but sometimes it's a little negative because then it's like you get this. Uh, sometimes, you know, we talk about it. Like you have some kids, oh, this is my top 30 schools. And it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's like you got to narrow it down eventually. And, uh, so I think, you know, it's, there was some, some negatives in that within itself. And then obviously, like I just mentioned, you do have some kids who, you know, um, they may post and say they have an offer, and it may just be more interest, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's kind of like that, you know. Right. There's a blurred line there. Blurred you don't know what's yeah. sure, what's what's a sure thing mm-hmm. yet. It's mm-hmm. not confirmed. It's just right. I'm just interested in the school. Right. And they and they don't, you know, and the kids themselves they don't fully understand, you know. Like yes, you're talking to a coach consistently, you know. They but they haven't said hey, we're verbally offering you, and it could be a verbal offer. It's nothing like a, you know you can sign it today. Can you sign that offer today? If they say all right, you say I'm gonna commit to you all today. Can I sign, you know, you know, so I think that process within itself is um, still challenging. And that's the part where, you know, just talking about being a resource for kids and, you know, just helping them through that process. So, but yeah, you know, definitely can be some negative there sometimes though. So, yeah. If, if there's a guy that you're working with on your team mm-hmm. who's interested in playing in the next level mm-hmm. and they, and they're not getting many looks from mm-hmm. coaches, what types of advice do you tell them and how do they get their mm-hmm. name out there and their their footage of their film and what mm-hmm. if, what if it's not clicking what if there's not something right. not, that's not happening what what can they do i think the biggest thing is um the biggest thing is just continue to be consistent you know um you know uh, it's kind of kind of take it back to dating you know in a sense like 
you know, you be consistent with that girl. You know, all she can do is tell you no. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you can accept no, but at the same time, you know, you can be, you know, be responsible with that no. But at the same time, just be consistent in terms of, you know, if you really want this, mm-hmm. you know, just be consistent in what you're doing in terms of, you know, trying to get that answer. But um, in regards to just directly, you know, like I said, just being consistent. But at the same time, maybe it's something you need to work on and develop as an individual. But at the same time, I think the biggest thing is for us here, you know, I know we, um, and I speak for us in terms of, we, we, we do the best job we can to promote our kids and give them the opportunities that they need. You know, at the end of the day, um, it's that coach's job or, you know, it's his job on the line when he was recruiting. So that's the other part, just understanding the, the aspects of recruiting. Um, you know, I know lacrosse is a little different. I know some other sports are a little different. But a lot of these coaches, at the and especially in football in particular, you know, recruiting in college is, you know, and they talk about the difference in college coaching and NFL coaching and professional coaching um, is recruiting. You know, in the NFL, you don't have to do recruiting. Like, yeah, you do the scouting and all those things, but college coaches' jobs are on the line when, you know, they're recruiting. So if you're a bust, in a sense, and when we talk about the NFL with a draft, um, that's their job, you know, because that's the person who they invested into mm-hmm. for those four years with a scholarship or whatever the case may be. Um, so sometimes they're, that's if it's something they don't, you know, 100% like there, you know, they're not going to pull that trigger or, you know, make that decision. So I think the advice mainly is just staying consistent, continue to work hard, you know, continue to allow your coaches to work for you in terms of your recruitment. Um, but, you know, also just trying to find out if there's anything you need to develop in your game. You know, sometimes it, it's, it's, it's weird, you know. Um, sometimes some kids don't get offers to their senior year. I remember I got my first offer. It was in the summer of my senior year. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of interest from schools. Um, but I remember getting my first offer in the summer of my senior year, and it was like, okay, you know make you feel good but at the same time like you said you kind of wonder you know but at the end of the day I think me having the interest I was okay mm-hmm. but you have some people now in just the age of where we are now in this culture now you have a lot of kids they you know yeah you know and some of this being created you know by the aspect of recruiting but you know some people are getting offers when they're freshmen or a sophomore so then you have those who don't get it like you said it's like hey why am I not getting offered I feel like I'm good enough whatever the right. case may be so I think just a matter of just staying consistent working hard and allowing your coaches to recruit for you um, and then sometimes there's some things, like I said, self-reflection, like, is, is, is your social media clean? Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes, you know, if it, a lot of kids don't realize if you like something or uh, retweet, you know, they kind of know. But if you like something, it shows up. So if you like something that's negative or something, you know, a coach see that, they kind of like, uh, you know, they cannot that's say true. they're always like, uh, how good you are. You know, like, they look at that and say, oh, okay, he's, he's a decent player. Like, we, we like him, but, you know, he's Characters look questionable there. Yeah, yeah, that's so. true. That's something I didn't think about. The, the mm-hmm. likes show up on mm-hmm. your Twitter. They feed. show up on your Twitter. Feed. Everything. There's, yeah, you can go there's to a your footprint. Pro- there's a footprint, footprint everywhere. Carbon footprint there. So you can literally go to somebody's profile, click their likes, and see everything they like. So, yeah. you know, there's some negative things there. You know, that can you know can derive some of those things. But I would say someone who you know doesn't have those issues. You know, sometimes it may be your grades. You know, a lot of kids don't understand that process. You know. Yes, you have a 3.8 overall, but what's your core GPA? It's a little different in terms of that recruiting process. Yeah. Um, so that's the other thing, just making sure you have a you know a good, solid foundation with your academics and obviously the ACT, SAT score. You know, mm-hmm. make sure those things are good. So, and some kids don't register for clearinghouse. NCAA, they don't register with the NCAA. And some kids have not taken those tests. So when you take those tests and do those things in a timely manner, you just open the door sooner. So mm-hmm. some kids, I, I, you know, unfortunately – I've had several kids who have not done some of those things until their senior year. And, like, I'll be honest with you, coaches are recruiting. You know, your junior year is probably the biggest year mm-hmm. for recruiting in general. 
But, you know, you got kids who are doing some of these things when they're sophomores in terms of, like, just registering, you know, for the clearinghouse. You know, really just being proactive being and being proactive. on top of all top of this of stuff. Mm-hmm. So whether it's mm-hmm. your your weight room and mm-hmm. your, your ability on the field right. to your grades to your social media right. to contacting coaches is one of the things that I think exactly what you said, mm-hmm. the persistence part and, mm-hmm. the, you know, um, reaching out to mm-hmm. coaches is one of the things that – I I tried to tell players that the more you you kind of know what you want and mm-hmm. what you're looking for, yeah. and I know it's hard when you're 15 and right, 16 right, right. years old to know yeah. what you want mm-hmm. in college, but if you have some concept of the type of school you're you're looking for, right. the type of program you want to play for, and the type of coach you want to play for, and you tell them that, hey, right. you're the top of my list. I'll do whatever I yeah. need to do to get in your school. Mm-hmm. That goes a, a really far. Yeah. Yeah. way in terms of recruiting i think and letting them know hey i'm really interested yeah i you, you i mean you, i think you hit it you know spot on you know a lot of kids you know they also have these ambitions of you know d1 or bus and it's like <laughs> it's funny you know yeah that's okay you know it's great to play d1 it's great to play power five um but at the end of the day are you really power five or are you really d1 you know so there's a lot of other opportunities at the division two level at the division three nai um, ju- um, junior college, you know, so there's a lot of those, you know, opportunities out there. So it's not that it's not any opportunities for you. It's like, what are you, you know, what do you really want? And and also, in a sense, being a little bit realistic. I think that's the other part when you say, what you know, when kids are struggling with their recruitment, sometimes it's, a, you know, some, and even with parents, you know, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's just a reality thing. Like, all right, you're not really, you know, this level of player, so you're looking for that, but you're really here, and you're not giving it any attention or mm-hmm. thought. And um, I think that was one of the great – when I mentioned one of the coaches, uh, when I said when I told, uh, hey, I'm not coming there, or, I, you know, this coach recruited me when I was a sophomore, and he was at a HBCU um, at a – you know, it was a Division One school, but it was a smaller school. I had other, you know, bigger D1 schools recruiting me, and but at the end of the day, I treated him the same as I did any Power 5 coach or anybody else, you mm-hmm. know, so – um, so I think that sometimes it's just, you know, kind of been a little humble there um, sometimes. And so I think sometimes, you know, like you said, kids don't know, though. Um, one of the biggest things also just recommendation to kids when it comes to recruiting, always search the schools within like a five-hour radius of mm-hmm. your uh, wherever you are because most of those schools are going to recruit that area within that five-hour um, radius in terms of a driving distance. And, you know, you obviously pull up a map and kind of, you know, map that out. Like, what are the schools in your area? Mm-hmm. And like I said, you, when you think about that, like, all right, you got your Power 5, D1, and then, you, you know, we call a group of five, and then you go, we call mid-major, you know, D1, then you go into the FCS, and then you go down into uh, the Division two, and you just keep going down, but you've got several schools of opportunity within that radius. And so that's when you kind of, you know, make a picking order. Like, all right, you know, if you feel like you're up here and you're and you in reality, in reality you're there, then great. But if you, you know, you feel like you're interested in something below that, then, hey, you know, take a shot at it, though. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Take a shot. I yeah. Mean, why not? You're, right. you're not losing anything. Not losing nothing. And I think that's the biggest thing is like, you know, anything is better than nothing. Not to say you settle, but, you know, give yourself an opportunity is the biggest thing because you will have a lot of guys who, you know, um, they end up, you know, without nothing at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's because of just, you know, kind of just overshooting in a sense or, you know, not being realistic. Yeah, and I think that's another thing going back to you don't know what you don't know mm-hmm. is if mm-hmm. you're if you're a if you're a player and I use lacrosse for an example, but I think it's the same right. in football, if you don't know mm-hmm. what it takes to play at the right. next level, which how could you really right, right, unless right. you of have course. good guidance. Mm-hmm. And if your parents are saying you know, Johnny, you can play D1 for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, and tough. that's not realistic. 
you you're just walking around believing that you can mm-hmm. and no one's telling you the truth a, right. about your ability on the field so i think self reflection and talking to other coaches and yeah shooting for the top like shooting of for course, the, right. you know the highest you mm-hmm. you think you can go but mm-hmm. also having a couple you know d3 d2 uh, lower yeah. divisions mm-hmm. in in your back pocket that you're still reaching out to too, right. because you you never know and, and it's not like those schools in D two or D three in those divisions are right. any lesser. It's right. just different. It's just different commitment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, same no, probably that, applies for football. It's right. just not the D one commitment. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's I think one of the things that you, a lot of kids don't even realize like there's just as much money in terms of a d3 school in terms of you know uh you know a scholarship is you know a little different you know it's more academic but guess what your, your school is getting paid for it. that's the biggest thing you know where you know your mom and dad don't have to pay for that you know you know so that's 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 the reason why we do these things is in terms of it's our motivation that yes we want to compete at that level but i get to get an education at a higher level and for either a less of a cost uh, or a cost at all, in a sense. I mean, yes, you put in the work in terms of the physical aspect, and like I said, the commitment. But yeah, no, I think a lot of kids just overlook it in terms of, like, oh, I just want to go D1 and that's it. You know, and it's like, yeah, that's great too, but you want to go D1 and, um, you know, be a preferred walk on where you're paying money and you got to do everything that that guy on scholarship is doing? Or do you want to go to this Division three school at least or whatever? And I'm not saying go to D3 just because, but where you may get some academic money here and hey, you're, you're good to go. And it's still the same, it's right? The D2, same. D3, it's still every day. It's, yeah, still, still, every day. it's still a commitment still all the time. The, you still do the same grind. It's no same different. Grind. Obviously, facilities may be a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some, you know, the campus may be a little different. At, at the end of the day, you may be at a small school where academically that may be better for you. Um, you know, that was one of the things in my choice that I made, you know, uh, going to UAB. Um, it was, a, you know, a, a, a big school. But it wasn't too big, you know, like as Auburn or Alabama, where I made, you know, had over, you know, three, four hundred people in a class. Well, you know, I had, it was times I had a hundred, maybe two hundred in a class. But, you know, but it also was still that, you know, that, um, you know, that connection that I had with my professor regardless. And then, you know, and then I had some smaller schools that offered me and it would have been even more intimate setting, mm-hmm. you know. So, it, you know, it's just it, at the end, of the, I think it's an individual thing, obviously. But at the same time, just really, like you said, just understanding, which, you know, we don't expect them to know. But at the same time, that's where, you know, we come into play, like just taking advantage of your resources. Yeah. So, yeah. Coaches and parents Mm -hmm. and whoever you can talk to Mm -hmm. and ask about. And even, I would say, talking to some of the players on the team when you when you go and visit and you go walk around the campus. Definitely. definitely. Get a couple of those players and say, hey, what's it like here? What's what are the coaches like? Yes. yes, You know, get some more of that information when you Mm -hmm. do your your visit and your mm-hmm. walk around the campus. Yeah, because I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I would have loved to have went to Florida and played at Florida just because that was a school I grew up a fan of. But at the end of the day, I really enjoyed the fact that I, you know, I went to UAB. Um, I had the experiences I had. You know, I had the coaches I had. I had the teammates I had. You know, I had the professors I had. You know, it, it was, you know, it, it all turned out, you know, mm-hmm. what I needed it to be versus, you know, maybe I don't went to Florida or anywhere else and not have been happy at all. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and sometimes that happened with a lot of guys in terms of recruitment. They go places where it's almost like it's they're they're more infatuated with the process. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, all right, they're just all the same. I got this off. I got I'm going to this school or that school, whatever. And they really don't look into the details like that. You know, and like it goes back to like we don't expect them to know those things, but it's just one of those things where now use your resources, listen to your resources 
And, you know, just, you know, take advantage of the opportunity, but also take advantage of the opportunity to learn. Like you said, you know, reach out to the players that are currently on the team, build those relationships. Um, I think I, I saw a tweet today. It was just talking about, like, you know, learn about, you know, what's the graduation to job, you know, when mm-hmm. people graduate, you know, what kind of jobs they get, you know, or, you know, what's job placement like when you leave there? Um, what kind of support committee do you have there at the school in terms of, you know, I know at UAB, we had advisors with the school and then I had an academic, uh, athletic academic advisor. Mm-hmm. So those were two separate people, but they was put there in place for me and my success academically. Then we also had an academic center just for the athletes, you know, so those it's pretty are, nice. Those things were a lot put of in places pl- don't have that. Right. And there's a lot of places to this day still don't have that. And those things were put in place, though, for my success, though, which, you know, I was a person I didn't like to study. You know, I really didn't have to. Mm-hmm. So I got away with it. But then it, when I got to college, it got to a point like, oh, you got to, you know, start studying now, you know. So it was just one of those things there. But those things were put in place for me and it allowed me to still be successful, you know. And so, you know, even when it comes to tutoring, like, yeah, you can go get your own tutor, you know, as any student can. But if they're providing that service for you or they put those things in place for you, we had eight hours requirement of study hall every week. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a certain, you know, GPA. So, you know, learn those things in terms of how does it set you up for success yeah. you know, versus just saying, hey, I'm going to go to Alabama and, and not know, you know, shots to them, but I'm just going to Alabama and just play football. Just you know? for the name brand. Right, just for the name brand. Right, yeah. right. And I think that was one of the um, going back to my first year here. I was one of the, you know, think most amazing things to watch Thomas Booker go through his process, you know, here he was this four-star athlete um, who had, you know, the talent to play anywhere in the, you know, in, in the U.S., um, any college, you know, had the offers, had every offer you could think of. And when he made his top five, not so much, you know, we all know he went to Stanford, but when he made his top five, you know, in his top five, he had to, the likes of Penn and Harvard, you know, in his top five with Notre Dame, with Stanford. And it's like, okay. You know, obviously we all know, but it's like, why did he choose those? Because, you know, he knew that they was, you know, one, it was what he wanted in terms out of the out of the process. But at the same time, there was things that were put in places at those places that really made him understand that this is what's going to help me be successful versus if I go to this school or that school just for football per se. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, he chose probably the best academic, athletic <laughs> combination you can get. You get but, right, right. But he was still probably thinking when he was putting that list together, mm-hmm. it was like, what happens if I get hurt or something mm-hmm. happens? Of course. God forbid if I get hurt. Right. I'm at this school. Am I going to like this school? Am I going to get a great of education? Of course. If he, if God forbid, if something happened and football was no more, oh yes. he, he's at Stanford, right? Yes, yes, he's at Stanford. Oh, my God. I, you, you just said something then in terms of the whole, am I going to like this school if I get hurt um am i going to like this school if the coach leaves right because that's, that's the other thing now like this it's a business you know mm-hmm. uh you know uh i think early on when i was like all right do i want to coach at this level or that level you know for me i made that decision i said you know college is a business like you know it's really you know gritty you know and at the end they you know any professional you know job you have a career it's a business but at the end of the day it was like when it came to football it was a business like it's cutthroat. If you don't win, it's like you, yeah. your job's on the line either, right there. Well, and that's the other thing. Either your job's on the line or your coach has done so good that another school is trying to get him. And, you know, and that's just part of it. And there's nothing wrong with it in a sense. But at the end of the day, though, like you have to understand as that player, all right, am I really going to like this school mm-hmm. for the school versus just the coach? Like I, I'll be honest, I chose UAB because initially I wanted to do something in the medical field. Mm-hmm. With that being said, I also chose you because I did like my coaches and who they were in terms of the position I played and the development I knew I would get from them, which it all worked out for me perfectly. But my senior, my O-line coach, left. He got a Power 5 job, 
and he's been in power five ever since. He's a great offensive line coach. At the end of the day, though, I had to ch- I chose UAB for UAB, you know, and you know, like I said, my coaches were part of that, me making that choice. But at the end of the day, what if they'd have left my second year? You know, it would have been a challenge probably, you know, if I didn't choose it for the right reasons. Because you, you get miserable and then you want to leave or you want to go somewhere else or whatever the case may be. You know, all those things happen. Like you said, the injury, you know, that that's always a possibility of anything you do sport-wise. So, it's, you know, I always have the injury. And I think that was one of the things that I did appreciate about my head coach, uh, Coach Callaway, Neil Callaway, was that he always told us, like, you always hear this saying of, you know, let your education be your fallback plan if you don't make it in the sport or whatever the case may be. He never said that. You know, it was kind of cliche. He said, no, let your sport of football be your fallback plan. Mm-hmm. You know, education at first is your priority. So I think when, if a lot of guys take that into their process, like, all right, it's about my education first and then this, which, it, you know, it's a huge commitment, but put the priorities in terms of your education first versus the sport itself. What are some things that high school players might not know about the next level? So you said a lot mm-hmm. of guys want to go D1 or want to play mm-hmm. big-time football, but you've you've been there. You've played it. Oh, my gosh. What is, what is the jump in terms of level commitment and just um, football at the next level? I think the first thing people think about is, like, okay, the game itself. Like, what's the game like? Um, the speed of the game is obviously going to be faster. I mean, that's anything you do. The speed changes every time you go up another level. Um, I think the discipline, and when I say discipline, I mean discipline to fundamentals, technique, those type of things are, are huge where, you know, you're developing guys in high school, but they're really a lot, a lot of times just unfundamentally sound. Um, and, you know, and that's just a process within itself. But that's the biggest thing is the fundamentals and the discipline within that, the time commitment of your schedule. Um, you know, you have this whole argument, um, should college players get paid, you know, should they get paid, you know, money? Um, you know, for me, in, in regards to not just so much that conversation, but it's like a job. Mm-hmm. Like, it it's really is a, um, you know, you work 40 hours a week at any job where you get an hourly salary, you know, all right, that's 40 hours, and then anything over that is overtime. Mm-hmm. You're going to do some overtime. So you're definitely going to do some overtime in college. Like I just said, we, we was required eight hours of just study hall. You have 20 hours in terms of the coaches can be with you during practice, you know, in terms of, you know, the practice itself and meeting times and those things. But you also have things you have to do on your own because you are to a certain certain degree considered a professional in a sense. Like they expect you to do things on your own outside of the time you have with them. Then you have the training you have with your weight room coaches. Um, then you have individual things that you have to do in regards to your training or maybe your diet or whatever the case may be in that. And then maybe we, your ankle's swollen, you got to go oh ice it, you got to yeah. go ice bath after your workout. Yeah. And those things are just maintaining, you know, just trying yeah. to maintain and be efficient and, and stay fresh in a sense and being able to compete. Um, I think, the, obviously, the intensity of practice is different. You know, obviously, football is football in general, but the intensity of practice is different. Um, and it kind of goes back to even me talking about the fundamentals. Um, I just remember, you know, my high school was a little unique too, as well. Um, and just, it, and I think sometimes it just depend on who you have as a coach and you know their whole um, concept and uh, their, uh, say the concept, but more their uh, philosophy of things. My high school coach was very smart about saving our bodies uh, throughout the week and those type of things. And obviously, the game has changed now in regards to you know people are more aware, you know, concussions and those type of things, head injuries and uh, brain injury, so we're trying to, you know, do things like that. So that was one of the things, you know, that adjustment that did help me when I got to college was, you know, yeah, we, we banged, we, we went hard, but then there was times where, you know, we pulled back on the reins and, you know, we were smart about it. But the fundamentals were more important then because if I don't have any gear on, I just have a helmet on, I just got to play with my hands and my feet. 
mm-hmm. you know, as an offensive lineman in particular, where most people, oh, they got a bang. Like, how do you play offensive line with no gear on? And it's like, no, it's a way to do it. That's how it's supposed to be done. Right. And but it, but it was mainly technique and fundamentals. Uh, the study of the game itself, obviously, the IQ of the game and anything you do. Um, I you know I tell stories to the kids all the time where I, I competed against some you know guys that you see play today. You know that you watch and you're like, oh, he's good. Like Fletcher Cox, Von Miller. You know those type of names. Pernell McPhee. You know, I played against those guys and I competed and, and did well against them, not because I was better than them as an athlete or talent-wise. I, it was some things I did technique and fundamentally sound, mm-hmm. you know, and it was because I watched film and I studied it and I knew exactly what he was going to do on the second step, you know, without, you know, it was just all muscle memory because I watched the film enough. I picked up on his uh, his tendencies, you know, obviously studying the game in terms of a defense as a whole as their scheme and what they do. Um, your own playbook, you got to know what we're doing because if you know what you're doing, then you obviously can, can execute better. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, you know, that's just football in general. But at the same time, if you if you don't take advantage of those things or do those things the right way, then you're just going to be, I guess, what you call a person who participated. <laughs> you, yep, know, yep. you know, in a sense, you know, and I guess for lack of better terms, but you're going to be someone who just participated versus, you know, you have a good experience, but you know, the you know we all know the best experience of being able to be active and involved in this. You know, mm-hmm. so I think that's the part there. It's just you know it's those things. So I just say from time commitment, time management, uh, discipline, studying the game, just the IQ of the game itself, and then like I said, going back to time and just like in terms of your academic piece, all those things just tied in one. Then you mentioned the whole health piece, the health in terms of you know keeping your body you know in a good condition. Uh, you know, I was very blessed and fortunate. I didn't have any you know. I say severe injuries. I had high ankle sprain, which still bothers me to this day. But there was times where it hindered me in my play. And but in in that process though, like I still had to play. I still had to compete. Mm-hmm. So I still had to figure out how to get it done. Well, that's know? the other thing too. If you get a somewhat minor injury or mm-hmm. you're a little beaten down, mm-hmm. you're a little tired, it's if you take a step back and sit out for a couple of practices, maybe you can get away with that in high school if yeah. you're a pretty good yeah. player. You're you you move all the way down the depth chart as soon as you take a day off. Yeah, I'll be honest. I, I tell people all the time when I when I went to UAB, I kind of probably got the big head a little bit. Um, when I walked in um, our staff meeting room, my name was on the starting left tackle when I walked in on campus. I haven't played it down or anything, and they had me as the starting left tackle. And there was some veteran guys that was already there. And then I had a teammate who actually you know played in the NFL after you know we graduated. Um, at the end of the day, he was behind me on the depth chart. Anyway, I was a star left tackle, and then, you know, I end up, you know, kind of going through camp. I kind of got behind in terms of the playbook. Uh, I, I I end up getting sick or whatever. I remember I end up, like, dislocating a finger, hurting my hand or whatever, and I end up at the bottom of the depth chart. Mm-hmm. You know, just exactly what you just said. That overnight. Happened. Overnight. You know, yeah. just during camp my freshman year where I had this potential to be the starter, essentially what it is. And, you know, p- people think of potential as a good thing, and it's like, no, it's not a good thing. Potential means this is the ability that you have. And this is your actual what you're putting out in terms of production. So, mm-hmm. um, so anyway, that that exactly will happen. So if you don't, <clears throat> if you don't, you know, take care of your body and do the right things, then yeah, you will end up in that situation. And um, and it kind of reverse happened to me later. You know, kind of happened to some other guy, and that kind of got me in. And you know, I kept going. And like I said, when I, I did face those injuries or whatever it was in terms of, little, I say minor things. I was able to fight through it and you know figure it out. You know, yep. you know, you Just get your extra treatment, go right. down. And that's the other thing, treatment. Oh my God, you said treatment. You was required if you had any. If you said your fingernail was hurting, or you know, if you you know had a hangnail and you told the trainer, you know, there may be a time when you got you got treatment at five a.m. and if you don't go, 
uh, the treatment, you know, everyone's you, in trouble. You're in trouble. <laughs> you're in trouble. I, yeah, everyone. But yeah, you're definitely in trouble because you know you're gonna be punished for it. And it's not it's not a punishment in terms of uh, we're punishing you for what you did. It's more or less understand how serious this is. Understand, you know, that you gotta yeah. take care of things and you know do the right things. And, and that's essentially what it is. You know, uh, I I will say, you know, as a young adult at that time, you're kind of looking at like, man, this is just negative in a sense. But, you know, but you, you when you look back at it, you know, it's, right, no, it was just, you know, trying to teach me to, you know, time management, do things the right way and just take care of yourself as, as a whole. Yeah, yeah. I remember I, I had teammates and I think it was like Easter morning or something. Mm-hmm. And there was treatment on Easter morning because we had a game. We had <laughs> yeah. a di- game the day before. It's mm-hmm. midseason and Easter, you know, and. Mm-hmm couple guys were like it's easter i'm gonna go hang out with my family and right, like, i'm not gonna go down and do my treatment mm-hmm. they're all suspended the next week right yeah yeah <laughs> you don't get a break it's no nah, yeah and I, people don't understand people really like some people do mm-hmm. if they have coaches and mm-hmm. maybe been around it right yeah but you really have to live through it you have to go through it because yeah. i remember i had friends mm-hmm. in college and i would be uh, we'd be hanging out or something i'd be i'd be saying oh i'm exhausted like i don't want to go to practice or whatever tomorrow right, right, right. i just want a day off or whatever yeah, yeah definitely and they're like oh you, why do you have to go just take just take. i'm like <laughs> like no you don't get it you don't get it no yeah, that's the difference it. no i think uh shoot I, you know moved to my 5 a.m you know my first 5 a.m was because i didn't go to treatment and it wasn't because i wasn't hurting anymore i didn't check out or get cleared or released like i was fine everything was good to go i just didn't do the proper protocol of getting released mm-hmm. i'm like like, are you kidding me? But yeah, and then going back to what you just said, like people don't really get it. Um, your schedule is built, like your school schedule, like in terms of what classes you take, anything you do is built off of your, whatever the athletic schedule is. You know, and I and, and, and you talk about privilege. Yes, we got to choose our classes first before, you know, a lot of other people on campus. And then on the flip side of that, though, like if you had a doctor's appointment or anything of that nature, you did get hurt or whatever the case may be, you wasn't missing class. I don't you know, regardless of what the injury or whatever it was, they scheduled your appointment during a time when you didn't have that. So it wasn't no excuse like you said, like, oh, I just don't feel like going or I'll just make a doctor's appointment during this class or during practice or whatever. No, you're, you're going to be mm-hmm. there. They're going to schedule everything out, um, you know, strategically where you don't miss anything, you mm-hmm. know, you know, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's a different, it's a different animal, you know. Yep. Yep. And when it you is. talk about discipline as being one of the, major factors that intensifies at the mm-hmm. next level that's that's probably number one for me it's the diff the you, yeah. there, there's no there's non-negotiable if you don't if you're not yeah. there you're not there you're not no you you, it, you and that's the thing you can't just miss something like you said and think it's going to be like oh okay i'll just catch up tomorrow no or you, if you're late like i remember guys uh, came down two minutes late to practice and oh, it's yeah. like oh you know just hop no go home no like, go home go home or uh go with the strength conditioning coaching you know <laughs> get your extra work out of yeah get, get you some uh be your best friend uh I, oh my gosh i think my freshman year uh, you know just bringing back memories i remember when i told you like i said i got the injury or whatever during my freshman year I, I remember talking to my mom like preseason camp is uh, was another thing like just that schedule within itself is rigorous. But I remember I had a you know, had a time to talk to my mom, you know, only like probably an hour. And I remember talking to her that evening and I was like, Mom, um, if my bike would had two wheels and wasn't attached to the machine, you know, I would have been home, you know, by now. That's how many miles I rode that day on that bike, you know, because yeah. we was in fall camp at the time, which if you go back to time management discipline, that was another animal within itself where um, you're and we talking about schedules, but this is the time between summer workouts and prior to school starting, and so you're there from breakfast, which is mandatory at six a.m. 
you go from breakfast to meetings, then you go from, which, you know, maybe, you know, 7 o'clock, then you go from meetings from 7 to, you know, 7.30, maybe 8. You go to a the first period or first practice, per se. You'll do that, um, you know, for two, two and a half hours, and then you go to practice, um, workouts right after that. And then after workouts, you go to lunch. So now we're already at 12 o'clock or whatever, 12.30. Then you may get like an hour and a half there break in between. Then you have to go back to treatment and taping because you have to get taped and treated before practice, next second practice within this. this two days. So two days. And then you go to meetings again. And so that's probably 3 o'clock. And then practice, I mean, excuse me, 2.30. Then practice starts at 3 o'clock, 3 to 5. You got practice. Then you go from there to dinner. And then, you know, you may have like a window in there at dinner for like an hour, hour and a half. And then after that, you go to meetings after dinner. <laughs> so you leave meetings after dinner that last actually to 10 o'clock at night. And then you may have special teams meeting, you know, that may go to 1030. And then you have curfew sometimes 1030, 11, just depending on how the meeting schedule is at the end of the day. And that was, you know, that was Monday through Saturday for the most part. And Saturday we would have scrimmages and Sunday um, in the morning, we'll have a little time off hours for religious regions, reasons. And, but it would be, you wouldn't know what day of the week it was up until Sunday. Yeah. Just uh, Saturday, together. obviously, but Sunday you would definitely like, okay, now nah, I know it's Sunday. And, but now nah, that was, and that was a commitment for like, you know, I can't remember the exact days, I think like 15 days probably. Yeah. And that was prior to, we, we see as the fans, we see the players play, we're like all excited for the first game. Yeah, the players are too. The players are excited for school to start back because this is done in between the time when there's no classes, so like the coaches have free range. You know, kind of like that. You know, a lot of time with you, and they they make sure they have it scheduled out so they you know yeah. get all your time every minute. Yeah, every minute yeah. they can. Yeah, they capitalize on that. And, it's like our spring break. All my all my friends were going to Mexico, and yeah. it's like, oh, we have two days and we have meetings. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, spring break is not not fun if you're yeah. playing. Uh, and, and this is, so this is the going into <laughs> labor or not labor Memorial Day week. No, Labor Day weekend. I get the days. I always get those two mixed up. But anyway, Labor Day weekend. So in September, so you, when school starts back in, you know, end of August, kind of. You know, you go through that train, it's like, wow, like this is like you're just ready for school. You can't like, wait for school. Yeah, <laughs> you're like excited to go to school. But at the end of the day, you know, it goes, you, then the season obviously is starting and those things. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, definitely, it's a, it's a discipline and time commitment, those things, like you said. So, yeah, a lot of people don't understand, you know, that part of it. You know, and you do that, you know, however many years you're in college. You know, I was there for five years. I redshirted one year. Um, so, yeah, you do that for that time frame. And it's like, you know, a lot of time in your life is, you know, spent towards that commitment and that, you know, and then, like you said, just being disciplined enough to do that every every year, um, year in and year out. Um, you know, but it's, it's, it was a fun process, though. But game day makes everything worth it, right? Yeah, the game is easy, though. You know, that's the part where... You it's know, a we, celebration. Yeah, we kind of talk about, you know, like the whole commitment and, you know, how what it really takes. The game is easy in terms of... And that's what the coaches and how things are um, designed. Um, Coach Callaway used to always say, by design, everything was by design. He used to always say that, but it was by design that practices were tough and grueling. And then when the game came, yes, challenges within the game, but at the end of the day, it was fun. Like you said, it was a fun experience and it was easy, you know, Mm -hmm. um, because you went through a lot of situations and those things that created that, you know, it it essentially, you know, became night and day in terms of, you know, the routine of what you were doing. So, yeah. Yeah. You're not winded. You're not tired. You're not banged up on game day. You're fresh. You're fresh, yeah. And you're ready to go. Yeah, I think um, I never, you know, personally, um, never really, you know, got, uh, I would say, winded during a football game. No. Uh, I think I had one, you know, 
slight got rolled up on, you know, one time and I started cramping. I think it was more from my muscle being fatigued from that injury, you know, in terms of just compensating for my knee at the time. But, yeah, other than that, no, I never had any of those. And we played on double overtime in that game. So that mm-hmm. was, you know, I, you know, so never had, you know, the condition itself was there. So never had any of those issues, though. Best or most fun game that you've ever been a part of? Oh. Most memorable game. Gosh, it was a lot of um trying to think, you know, I think as a player, um, obviously when I was in college, um, the, I think the most fun game was maybe we didn't win, but uh, against Mississippi State in 2010. Um, and I think it was mainly just because, um, like I said, they was a top-rated defense. Uh, Manny Diaz, who is the head coach at Miami now, uh, Dan Mullen was the head coach there, who's at Florida now. Um, I told him earlier, I played against Fletcher Cox, Pernell McPhee. Uh, so those guys was on defense, and so. Uh, but anyway, most fun game. I think uh, I got offensive lineman of the game. Uh, it was just a challenging game. That's probably like one of the best defenses I personally played against. And when I say that, they did a lot of things in terms of the way they did. They disguised their blitzes and the way they brought them from different angles, and um, you know, just mixing things up. And anyway, but I think it was the most fun game. Like we lost um, in sight, and I say that it was a very close game. You know, it was, uh, I can't remember. I, I, I usually get the score. I don't know why I got the score kind of mixed. I, I keep remembering like 28-24 or 28-23. I need to go back and look it up. But um, in saying that, we competed hard, you know, as a team. We, you know, we was kind of on the cusp of, you know, being a very great team that year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was, and I, and I guess next to that probably was 2009 versus Southern Miss, who was a rival of ours. Um, it was our first time beating them in program history. Um, and so we did that. Um, I think it was for my sophomore year. So my sophomore year, we beat them in 2009. And so – that was, you know, a very exciting game. So yeah. Did the did the program discontinue after you had already left? Yeah. So um, I graduated in 2012. So what happened was in 2014 they played the season. Then towards the end of that season, um, you know, kind of, and I'll be honest with you, things were kind of, you know, rumors and things were, you know, in the air when we was playing. Mm-hmm. Um, UAB is a very young football program. When I say young, like I'm old. I'm older than the football program. You know, uh, started in 96 uh, as a D1 program, but started in 92, 91, 92. And so, and I was born in 88. So, with that being said, uh, the program shut down at the end of 2014. The president announced that, hey, we're shutting down, discontinuing the program, football, bowling, rifle um, at UAB. Um, they did that. And there was a out, you know, outburst, you know, from the community, from the fans, obviously from you know us as former players, alumni, um, and it was essentially it was shut down, saying that you know they did a study, and you know you said the quote earlier, you said we don't know what you don't know, and uh, I'll be honest with you, that was kind of like a neg- that like that's one of the things that um, I never wanted to hear again, um, and it's because the president at the time he made that statement said you know in terms of, in, in his rebuttal, of, mm-hmm. you know him, he essentially you know was you know given the you know, the job to shut the program or announce it per se. Um, but at the end of the day, we're part of the board of um, trustees of Alabama, the University of Alabama. So it was just that connection there. But anyway, essentially there was a study did that the money, the program was financially not doing well. <clears throat> um, UAB is one of the largest employees or is the largest employer in the state of Alabama. So it was kind of, you know, just, you know, it was just kind of weird that that was happening. And I remember, you know, as a player, we used to get reports from our AD you know, he would tell us, like, you know, hey, football financially is doing well. So it was kind of interesting when, you know, when this came out. And as mm-hmm. we said, <clears throat> two years before that, my, well, my senior year, actually, there was conversation of a new stadium being built or, you know, they were trying to advocate for that and they kind of shut that project down. And in Alabama, they, like, approved, like, 20-plus, you know, 
projects that same day when this all was brought to the board and uh, and on the agenda. Um, so the program was shut down, said it was financially not doing well. It was the study showed that the numbers, you know, essentially didn't add up to continue. Well, then another study was done a few months after that that reviewed that study. And the second study that was done reviewed that that study didn't, you know, do its diligence in terms of actually, you know, researching everything and was inaccurate. It's pretty bizarre, right? Yeah. Because you were thinking about a new stadium, the AD was yeah. saying things were good. And yeah. Then... Yeah. So it was, uh, I would tell I tell people, it was a political, you know, thing um, in terms of Alabama. Uh you know, there were some things in terms of the story, you know, that we knew of and things that were been told to us um, in terms of, uh, so Paul, obviously Bear Bryant, everyone knows him as a legendary football coach, but his son was, uh, was the president, I'm not mistaken, I think he's the president of the board. He's not anymore, but he was the president of, uh, <clears throat> president of the um, board of trustees, University of Alabama. Like I said, we're part of that system. And so essentially... There was something Gene Bartow, you may know as a legendary basketball coach. He was at UAB. He was at UCLA before he came to UAB. And he actually is the father of athletics at UAB. Actually, you know, kind of he started the actual, you know, the programs there, basketball, and, you know, obviously created the success there. And, and essentially there were some things that happened, I think, between Bear Bryant Sr., the father, and him mm-hmm. in terms of, I think, uh, I guess the rumor or the story that was told was, he told some things or, you know, basically essentially um, turned him into the NCAA or some things he was doing illegally while he was, like, I'm assuming, at Alabama. And I think so it was kind of like a grudge or a vendetta there. Hmm. Some you know, ironically. Right, yeah, right, right. Yeah, so. Um, behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, we, they had some successful years before I got there. We was always on the cusp of 500. And when I say cusp, like, there was three or four games. That was close, you mm-hmm. know. That we could, and and, and the year I said we beat, uh, we not beat, we lost to Mississippi State in twenty ten. We lost also to uh, Tennessee early that year, um, and double overtime, and we missed five field goals in that game. So we was a program that was we had great, we had great we talent right there. Yeah, we had great talent, had great coaches, um, you know, just on the cusp there. But anyway, essentially, that was kind of easy to you know say, all right, we're just gonna shut this program. They're not winning, they're not being successful. But this year that they did it. Um, got our head coach that we have now, Coach Bill Clark, um, another former high school coach in the, in the state of Alabama. You know, pretty you know well known guy. Uh, had some success at Pratt Bowl, won you know uh, championships there. Um, was you know nationally ranked um, as a team. Um, anyway, so it was his first year, and his you know he just got there. They just hired him, um, and so they went six and six. Got bowl eligible for the first time since two thousand five, and they shut the program down, so they didn't get to go to bowl that year. So, you know, he did he did a great job and obviously there was several other people involved in terms of getting the awareness out there that hey, this is wrong, you know, we gotta do something about this. And um two thousand I think later that year was two thousand fifteen, they essentially said, All right, we're gonna bring it back. Yeah. And that was one of their best seasons, right? They made a couple it was. Bowl, I mean, it was, bowl games. So that was the first time they was um, eligible for a bowl game. They had first bowl game. So, like I said, it's a young program mm-hmm. and started playing D1 in 91. So in terms of, you know, like I said, I was born in 88. So uh, in 2005, I was just a sophomore in high school. So um, sophomore, junior in high school. So you think in 2005 was the first time they ever went to a bowl game. And then in two, and this is 2014 that they're eligible for another one. Um, with that being said – 
come back. I think or twenty they announced that. So then in twenty sixteen they didn't play at all. They just was practicing. So kind of what I was talking about like this whole COVID year. So they was kind of just working out practicing. Mm-hmm. He did a great job with recruiting in terms of he took advantage of the junior college you know um, realm on Avenue. Um, signed few high school players initially, and just because he knew he had to have guys that was able to compete early on, go quickly, and essentially anyway, first year back went to a bowl game, um, lost, um, won a conference championship, uh, two years, just won one this year, um, so this is three years in the you know in the return, you know, in a sense. So you got some um, momentum. Yeah, no, definitely, and, and a lot of people are like, wow, like you actually shut us down. So and now also we got a new stadium that's actually under oh, construction nice, right nice. now. That's actually downtown. Um, that will you know open up for this upcoming season, and you know part of the stadium deal. We don't have an on campus stadium. We played at Legion Field, which is a historic stadium. Um, actual nineteen ninety six Olympics played there. They played the soccer games there. Um, but it's very historic stadium in the state, you know, legendary, you know, a lot of the SEC championships played there early on, all those things. But with that being said, you know, it was time, you know, we called the old gray lady and at the end of the day, like it, it, it's had its time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, definitely needed something, you know, you can take pride in it. It's, you know, it's not in a great neighborhood per se, you know, most people would say, but at the end of the day, so some people, you know, truly didn't feel comfortable going to our games in that area. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they kind of, you know, they, you know, heard that, and you know, anyway, they they've done some things and you know put things in play, and so now you know it's all coming to the, the fruitation of the labor. You Great. Know? So yeah, awesome. Well, um, I do want to talk about the book recommendations, and yeah. the books that you're that you're reading on right now, right? Yeah. So I read one of these. I actually read in college. Uh, I read it in college. Uh, I was a history major, so uh, one of them was uh, slavery by another name. Um, essentially reinstating the black Americans uh, from the Civil War to World War II. And essentially, uh, actually one of my courses I took at UAB, like I said, a history major, um, book essentially was just about how, um, you know, this system was created at this time of, um, obviously, like I said, slave, slavery was over, you know, so it wasn't no more slavery, Civil War is over. So how this system was created in terms of taking advantage of legal laws that was kind of created to, you know, um, capture, um, obviously, African-Americans or black people. And and when I say laws in terms of, like, vagrancy laws and what a vagrancy law essentially was at the time was, you know, if you kind of was out just scrolling on a Sunday walk anywhere downtown as an African-American male at that time, then, you know, you can be, you know, locked up if you didn't have any business to be there, you know, like if you wasn't conducting any business per se. Um, So... What this led to was these convict leasing camps and this just this system within itself where African-American males were, you know, obviously taken into this. When I say convict leasing, and the word leasing there is essentially where you had, uh, so you say like the sheriff, you know, he arrested you. Then they would lease you to these corporations or bigger corporations or to maybe a farmer or this or some other bigger business. And Birmingham is um, was a steel city as well, kind of like Pittsburgh of the South, and so we had you know, had the coal mines and those things as well. And so what would happen was you these men were leased to these businesses and corporations to basically do hard labor, essentially for a price to pay off their fine for whatever they, the vagrancy law that they you know essentially you know committed the crime against per se, regardless if there was any evidence you know truly of what they really did. And so what would happen is, you know, you know, you just think in terms of, you know, inflation and other things. So if they had a $2,000 fine, you know, they may be working off a penny a day, mm-hmm. you know, doing this. And then they also have court fees that they have to pay off. 
So that was the whole the leasing piece. So like you may have a sheriff, you know, you he was leasing you to this corporation or business. And so what ended up happening is you obviously had a lot of you know, men who disappeared and they also was living in these uh, camps. They would call convict leasing camps, which is simple. You know, I, I, you know, I hate to compare things when you think about Holocaust and, the, you know, in the concentration camps there. It was kind of like similar situations in a sense when you look at, you know, you go and look up pictures or anything like that, you'll see it. And, you know, it was a way that the states made revenue. Um, like Alabama within itself made over 70% of its revenue during this time frame when that, you know, of this. And, you know, it was kind of personal in terms of just seeing this because you, you see this connection of some of the things in terms of our system today mm-hmm. with the judicial system and those things. And it's like you make, it makes you wonder, you know, just those connections that it have to those type of things that was created over time in our history. And it also gives you an idea of, you know, slavery just didn't stop because of the Civil War the emanci- or emancipation and all those things. So it, it gives you this understanding that now, this actually continued and led to other things, you know, within our history that we don't recognize and I think the other part, you know, um, I think the other part was just like just recognizing like, you know, the wealth that was created off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, my professor who actually taught this class and <laughs> used this book, he specifically talked about the wealth of his own family because it was a, a, he had a personal connection, you know, as a you know white male who was from, he was from Alabama. He was from Mount Brook, Alabama, which, you know, if you look up Mount Brook, you know, was one of the top wealthiest places in America. Um, in the mid 2000s, still is pretty, you know, affluent. And he talked about how his family wealth was created actually from this same system, you know. And he's, you know, and he's not bragging in a sense. He, he's, you know, he 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 feels bad about it because mm-hmm. um, he lives in an affluent neighborhood. You know, he's always had you know resources and things that he's needed. You know, as he's grown up as an adult. Um, but his grand, I can't remember if his great grandfather, his grandfather is actually someone connected to this book. Um, and the book is written by Douglas Blackman, and. Another part of this also in terms of this process, too, was there was um, you had the convict leasing camps and you had essentially, you know, you had black males that was missing because, you know, this happened and no one knew that they was. It was kind of like almost like, you know, we talk about uh, tra- human trafficking now, like that was kind of taking process within because you just had some people that were just, you know, taking black men just to do this just because they was making money off of it. Mm-hmm. And in saying that, they, you know, they would obviously die in these convict leasing camps and no one knew where they were. They were just buried in these unmarked graves. And, you know, so there's, you know, in, in Arkansas, Mississippi, Georgia, uh, Alabama, obviously. And, 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 you know, so some of these things were connected in Alabama as well. So um, there's an area in Alabama, in Birmingham, where these graves are. And he and essentially Douglas Batman, you know, he kind of talks about, you know, that connection to those things and those things there. And there's a great PBS video, stories, documentaries. There's a lot of things connected with that book that are out there, you know. So, so yeah, you, you read this back in college. Read and it in college. made that that big of an impact. Yeah, on it made you. an impact on me because I mean I think uh, you know I always loved history in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just always learning about our history because I think you know um, you can't move forward if you don't understand what happened in the past. And um, it's kind of you know it's interesting that you know that's where we are in, in, in our climate now today, but just the connection to it. I think you know we always talk about you know I would say the Black Lives Matters and you know some of the things that have sparked that conversation, you know, in terms of a uh, dealing with just authority figures, you know, as a young black male growing up in Alabama, it was definitely different, you know, and I say in general, as in America in general, but it was definitely different. Like I remember conversations with my dad about things he experienced, but not so much what he experienced, but the things he was always telling me to keep me from having to experience those things. And I say that in terms of 
you know, I you know I had friends. I had, I had my I heard I had my vehicle when I was sixteen. I was driving out sixteen. I had my first car. Um, you know, I had those things. But he was always like, hey, you know, don't have a lot of people in the car with you. You know, those type of things. And in your mind, you're like, like you know, why? You know, I can't have my friends with me. And it wasn't because he was being you know mean to me, but it was him understand that you know the more people you have in your car people view that in a certain way mm-hmm. and you know i kind of experienced some of those things because of that you know um my car was a little flashy you know when i was in high school and you know i kind of got you know got some stigma because of that you know in terms of association with with drugs you know and like oh you're selling drugs because your car looks like mm. this it's like because i didn't come from a wealthy family but you know my parents like you know i'll be honest with you they spoiled me you know they gave me things that you know, I worked hard. I played football. I, I did good in school. I didn't get in trouble. You know, I had a great character. Uh, with that being said, you know, you know, I was, you know, granted those things. But with that being said, you know, some people looked at it in a different manner, though. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, just the connection, you know, with those type of things. And like I said, my love for history in general. Um, I actually took a lot of classes in, you know, civil rights and, you know, going to school in Birmingham. Had a lot of connection to those things. So I took a lot of um class connected to civil rights and, you know, the history of Birmingham, which we all know has a, a very um, deep connection with civil rights movement and the er- that era within itself, history of um, American in the 60s, Americans in the 70s. So obviously a lot of connection to those things. So, yeah, no, so it definitely was a great book. Um, it, it is, I'll be honest, it's, it's very transparent. So it's, you know, it's not an easy read in terms of if you're someone who, you know, is offended really, it, it, it will, you know, touch you a little bit but at the same time I think it's great just giving that information in terms of just understanding what happened and and, and how these things transpired and also just giving the I think the biggest understanding is slavery didn't stop after Civil War Mm -hmm. like it continued and like it says so it's the re-enslavement African Americans from the Civil War to World War II so you know obviously continuation of that and um, and obviously you know there's conversations you know uh, after that, in a sense, but you know, in terms of just looking at known, in a sense, so yeah, mm-hmm. and, and and just the things that was done legally, in a right. sense, yeah. well, what they considered legal, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that reminds me of uh, a, a writer, Colson Whitehead, who I teach in mm-hmm. in my eleventh um, grade American Lit class, and mm-hmm. he he wrote a book, The Underground Railroad, which um, mm-hmm. it's a similar idea that that you're talking about. Yours is more from a nonfiction perspective mm-hmm. and looking at this historically but he he fictionalizes it and and just the main character is this girl named cora who Mm -hmm. who is growing up a slave who ran away but it's it's fictionalized in that she moves up north in her Mm -hmm. escape from slavery Slavery, but it's it's almost fantastical in that it's it's not historical she goes to different states and they're set up with different laws right and what i think Colson Whitehead is trying to say is in each of these locations slavery looks different like in yeah. one she's hiding in this mm-hmm. attic and she can't go outside mm-hmm. and she can't see her family and she's all alone right, right, right. is that worse than what she had before yeah. or is it just repackaged mm-hmm. in a whole different, a different way? way yeah yeah no I think and that's the part I think with this like it was repackaged like the laws are repackaged in a way that um, you know, it only affected certain people like, you know, vagrancy. What is vagrancy? Like vagrancy is just you hanging out. Like essentially vagrancy is somebody who's homeless or, you know, doesn't have a loitering. job. Loitering. Yeah, loitering. Loitering. Yeah. Uh, loitering, right. And so I think that was the interesting part when I like learned that. I was like, wow, like literally like, excuse me, we do this all the time. We just go outside to hang out, you mm-hmm. know, or I want to walk downtown and on a Sunday or, 
you know, walk through the park or whatever, you know, someone just randomly comes up to you and say, hey, you know, you know, you know, what are you doing? What's your business in a sense? You know, and you, and you don't really have like, I'm just walking. Mm-hmm. All right. You, you committed a crime in their terms, you know. And so I think that was the part that was more eye opening because there's some connection, you know, in terms of other things that have happened throughout history that make you wonder, like, wow, like this, you know, this really was a, you know, something systematically, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of that was created. And, you know, and then also talked about how. You know, in terms of you look at it in terms, like you said, the perspective from the north and the south where, you know, this was mainly in southern states, but it was almost like the other states was kind of turning a blind eye to it mm-hmm. in a sense, you know, kind of. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, yeah, no, definitely a great, great book there. You know, a great history book, great history yeah. lesson, um, you know, um, kind of, you know, one of those things where, you know, I, when I first read it or was first given it, I was like, wow, this is, this is very deep. Yeah. In terms of that, something I never knew about. Right. You know, you hear stories, hear things, and, you um, I was fortunate enough, you know, I had a lot of, you know, family in terms of just oral history in general that was always, you know, given those things. But that's what, that was something I never, you know, had heard about and understood or knew about in a sense. So, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and have, having read that, you're exploring it in a deeper way and, and yeah. understanding it at a deeper level, level than right. just what people have told you mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. you're actually kind of yeah. revisiting the, the right. past. Because, well, I say when I say the connection line, when you think about, um, you know, it's this, it's this sense in terms of how... Um, like uh, uh, the black and American family, like the black male figure not being a part of the family, so you take him away, and then you have you know, so who does the family? And essentially goes back to this other book that I'm going to talk about, but um, like who do they look up to? Who's their role model? And who's the person that they look up to? And so essentially, like you know, was this you know something not so much that was created for that reason, but at the same time, like just the connection in terms of you know, things we have issues with in our history of family dynamics, you know. Mm-hmm. And so how that was connected to it, because, you know, I've heard stories where, you know, all right, well, where did such and such, you know, father, where's he at? Or whatever the case may be, oh, he, he ran, you know, in terms of the terms they would say there, oh, he ran out with somebody or he left with, them with this other lady, had another family or a relationship or whatever the case may be. But essentially, maybe he was taken in one of these and, and put in one of these convict leasing camps and no one never heard of him again. And, and those stories are... Um, you know, there are several other stories where someone just wasn't heard from again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and it's kind of like, you know, interesting, like, okay, maybe that has some connection to it. Right. You know, so when you say thinking deeper, that's definitely, you know, what, like one of the first places my mind went to was like, wow, think about all the missing fathers in general, you know, for these families and, you know, in general, it's like, wow, like, you know, they ended up here. And then the, on the back end of it, um, you know, just the treatment of them, you know, how they was treated, you know, it was essentially they was treated like slaves again, and mm-hmm. it was in a legal system mm-hmm. after it was said it was illegal, you know, so, yeah, so I yeah. think that was the other part of it in connection to that, too, yeah. Well, interesting, yeah. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to check that out in yeah. the library, and mm-hmm. um, we'll get that up on the recommendation list yeah, on, no, on, definitely. on the podcast, so people can definitely. order it, I, I put the link there mm-hmm. in the, uh, okay. yeah, in so, the bio, yeah, so people can check it out if, yeah, if they want to read definitely it. Definitely on Amazon, and, uh, then the other book is uh, Cry Like a Man by Jason Wilson. And essentially it's talking about fighting, you know, for freedom from emotional incarceration. And it just talks about this whole stigma and ideology that we have as men, you know, just the whole masculine, you know, like what is masculinity mm-hmm. and how we as men are, <clears throat> we're kind of, we're stuck in that realm of like, we have to be tough. You like, you know, like, you know, when you deal with something hard, you know, suck it up or, you know, be a man, man up kind of. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, I think that connection, you know, we talk about football and we were just talking about that aspect in terms of that, you know, just being tough and gritty and, you know, 
I, you know, it was one of those things where, like, sometimes it's great, but then at the same time, sometimes, like, psychologically, what does it do to you mentally in terms of when you're dealing with other things in life? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so definitely a book I connected to because, you know, he, he talks about, essentially, it's, a, it's not so much of a biography, but he talks about his own personal story um, in terms of his mom's, oh, his, his, he starts off with his grandfather who was lynched in, the, in, the, in, the, in Florida at the time and just talks about how that process, and kind of, like I said, the connection with the book, how that process set his family up, you know, throughout generations in terms of his mom, you know, she had experienced that. And then obviously when she had her first husband, um, had an abusive relationship and had two kids and then, which was his brother, then she remarried to his father, which they didn't have a great relationship eventually. And then it just, and just the disconnect of their family, but the whole mental aspect of all those things that, you know, you deal with as a man or as a, you know, as a boy in general, and kind of like we're told, like, I don't know, suck it up or, you know, be tough or, like, you know, just, just kind of part of it in a sense. And, and essentially, like, you know, but you have these emotional issues that you're dealing with and just being able to release them and understand them in a, in a better sense and not allowing it to, you know, keep you from, you know, being who you need to be. Mm-hmm. And I think the connection for me, you know, like, obviously football, my dad was very, you know, in a sense what we consider a, a masculine man in terms of, you know, you know tough love and, all those things, you know, that was a great father. Uh, but at the same time, like, and there was a few times I saw my father cry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think that's the part, you know, as a man, you don't really see men cry. We don't see that a lot in a sense. And so just being like in like the title, you know, cry like a man versus like saying like men don't cry. Mm-hmm. You know, we always kind of get that stigma there. And so I think it was kind of, you know, very, you know, a very good book in terms of like, so I'm not finished with it completely, but it's, um, I think I'm on like chapter, was it 12, I think right now? I can't remember, 12 or 17, I can't remember. So uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's just a great book in terms of just opening your mind up to saying like, no, this is kind of reversible. Like, we don't have to be that way. And I think that's one of the things, me being here at Gilman, you know, I've learned more in terms of the mental awareness of your mental health and those type of things that I've, you know, definitely, you know, uh, contribute here you know obviously we just had this you know uh, PD Friday mm-hmm. in terms of those type of things and so anyway just essentially not having those things bottled up and being mentally free but how it affects your relationships with others too like having that mindset and you know I look at it with my family I look at it with my wife you know um, you know there's times she you know you know me being transparent she you know she's like you know you sometimes you lack being emotionally mm-hmm. and emotionless and, and, and like Really? Like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, no, nah, I feel like I'm, you know, I have emotions, you know, whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. But, you know, but that perspective from someone else is different, though, you know. And, right. But it affects certain things in your life. And, you know, when, you, when you're, you know, you have those things and you're not able to release them or really, you know, be yeah, able to. holding them in. Holding them in. Yeah. Right. So. And I, I had a friend ask me actually recently mm-hmm. about crying mm-hmm. and uh, whether... The fact that I, I just don't tend to cry that mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. I just don't. I just don't. I don't know why. Right, but right, I don't. Right. I just don't cry that much. And right. whether that's a product of upbringing and mm-hmm. things that I was told, right. or is that just just who I am naturally, mm-hmm. biologically? I just I don't right, have. Right, right, right. I, I express my feelings differently. Maybe mm-hmm. through anger, frustration, mm-hmm. right. or. But maybe it's not through sadness and crying. And right, I, right. I don't know the answer to that question. I yeah. I think. What I, one of the things I said was I think playing sports mm-hmm. definitely plays a role because in sports, like if you're playing football, right, and you fall down or you're getting pushed around mm-hmm. on the O line or on the right, D right, line, right. and someone's, you're yeah. not going to cry then. No, right, right, right. And your right. teammates would think you're soft. Very soft, right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. Right. So that makes sense to me, and my, and if my coaches told me that growing up, that makes sense to me. Right, so right. maybe I was getting messages from sports mm-hmm. that 
there are situations that you shouldn't cry and you should suck it up and play right, football right, right, right. and and you know yeah. figure out how to beat that guy mm-hmm. across the line from mm-hmm. you. But then there are other cases where it's totally okay to cry. And, yeah. and men can cry when right. they have emotions inside right. of them that yeah. they need to let out. So I yeah. think I think that's a complicated question, but yeah. but I do think society whether it's through sports, whether mm-hmm. it's through fathers, right, whether right. it's through watching older people, mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. older brothers, mm-hmm. maybe. That there are a lot of things that can affect whether a, a person cries. Right. But I think it's an interesting question to mm-hmm. think about. Yeah. It's like, why, why, do, why don't I cry that much? Is it because my dad you know, told me not to cry not to because cry. I mm-hmm. missed the goal yeah. in overtime? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. And I think like the first time, and I, you know, First time I saw my father actually cry when his sister died, you know. And, you know, we all get that, you know, in a sense. Like, okay, you know, this is the reason why. And then I think the second time I saw him cry was, and I say second time, was when my mother was diagnosed with cancer. And so he cried then because for him he felt like, you know, she didn't deserve that. You know, just he felt like, you know, she was just a great person, a good-hearted person. Like, why, why, why is she, you know, um, why does she have this? You know, why does she have to deal with this in a sense? And so... No, those are the only two times I saw my father cry. Now, and, you know, it wasn't a, I don't feel like it was a, just a negative thing overall, but in a sense, though, but he was, but he was a person who, you know, like, you know, be tough, you know, um, you know, you know, don't be soft, you know, and and, and, I, and it's not, you know, I don't think it was because, you know, that was his intentions in terms of, you know, uh, this is how it should be. I think it was just more like that's just what he understood and that's what he knows. So that's kind of what this book talks about. Like, you know, what are things that we've learned and that we derive from, that may be connected to something in the past or, you know, just having that emotional connection. Because um, I think, obviously, I think one of the things was talked about, at, you know, towards the tail end of the book, he, he talks about the relationship with his father and how his father wasn't really there for him. Like, he was there initially, then, like, just the connection, how he always wanted to please his father and how that emotionally hurt him. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, he talks about how his father um, essentially was like, hey, I want you to preach the gospel, in a sense. And he was like, in his mind, he's like, you want me to preach, like, you know, in terms of the experiences he talks about in the book, but he talks about, like, you want me to preach the gospel, um, you know, it's kind of like you didn't live up to that, you know, in a sense like that, but what he learns is that his father had some disconnecting things with his father, but, it, you know, so it was kind of like, it, it's a trickle-down effect of mm-hmm. those things, and, you know, and I think that's part, like you just said, like, even with your father, like, you're, you know, he told you to be a certain way in certain situations, but sometimes we don't know how to disconnect, you know, mm-hmm. from those different things, and I, I I definitely tell people, uh, I had some traumatic, I say traumatic, um, I had some rough, you know, <laughs> I say bad luck, uh, I think, what, 2013, 14, I would say, in 2015, like, you know, 2013, my father died, uh, four months later, my mom died, and then 2015, I had a house fire, like, literally within two years, within each other, mm-hmm. and so for me at the time, everyone was always like, man, I don't know how you do it, like, I, I continue to smile, I continue to do the things I was doing, like, but it, but I would say there were times, you know, I, um, I cried, you know, literally cried. You know, it was to myself, though. No one else saw it. Mm. But I had to cry because that was my way of letting it go. But on the flip side, um, people would say, well, how did you get through it? I would say, well, you know, everything I went through at UAB in terms of just the process of playing football, we talked about the discipline and the hard work and the grind and the grit. Like, you know, that was drills that we did, and we call them uh, mat drills that happened in the winter. You know, at this time you know, we we're in, in February, and those drills, that, it was tough. And so that got me through those things, you know, mentally. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, though, like, but what did it do to me long term, though, you know, in terms of my emotions and, you know, those type of things. So, 
you know, I, I think it's just uh, uh, that in terms of that book, it was like when I, when I saw the title of it, and I actually follow him on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of actually where I got the, you know, got the book from and, you know, saw him on Twitter. Um, he actually has a uh, school in Detroit. And obviously he just talks about, you know, growing up in Detroit in terms of those things and those connections and, and um, you know, but essentially, but it's just, I mean, it's geared to, you know, obviously we teach boys here at Gilman. So it's essentially geared towards men. So I think, you know, it's just a great thing in terms of just understanding as a man, like, you know, we have that stigma and that personification, but it's like, okay, mm-hmm. how do, you know, you know, why is that? Like you said, what, what, why don't we cry? Like, you know, like why, when we feel, you know, like a discomfort in something like that, you know, why we don't cry or, you know, it's kind of like we just have this macho, Right, you know, right. Mindset, in mindset, excuse me. So, yeah. I think, um, I think, I think it's totally right that mm-hmm. a lot of men might hold in their emotions, mm-hmm. and whether that's causal and and determined because of society mm-hmm, and, the, mm-hmm. and the tropes that we have in society, or that's a natural thing, or it's a mix right. of both. Right, I, right. I think it's an interesting question, but I think there is somewhat of a stigma and and, yeah. and playing sports might add on to that a little Definitely, bit but yeah. but I, I also think there are times when you shouldn't cry and there are times course, when it's perfectly course. okay to right, cry right, too right, right. but i would love to i would love to read that book because yeah. it's a question i've been thinking a lot about too it's, yeah it's like why why do people cry why do people think it's Things not cry. okay to cry right right you know it's it's an interesting yeah. question and, and i think and i think you know i think it's like i said just going back you know I think for me, it's just, it was a self-reflection, you know, in general, like something I've, you know, self-reflected more of. Um, and and I, and I think, for, like I said, just for me, just the things that I experienced, you know, like mm-hmm. I said, in the last couple of years, it was like, wow, like it's something I really got to, you know, I really have to, you know, cross paths with this and deal with it. You know, it's not that I didn't cry at the time, you know, it was just more like, what did that, how did that affect me emotionally? Because, you know, there's times I feel like, okay, like emotionally, you know, what can I go through that's worse? You know, in a sense, yeah, that's yeah. right. You know, and so, but was, but it, that's a negative thing to do because then you become emotional. Then, so like when there's times you're supposed to cry or you know feel that, you know, it's like ah, uh, you don't feel it because of that. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, uh, no, definitely, like I said, definitely think it's a great book. Um, you know, like it's very, you know, you know, uh, eye opening in terms of that. You know, like I said, we talk about that that stigma and that mm-hmm. cultural um, stigma to it. And it's almost like you know, like I said, it makes you look weak in a right. sense. That, and I think that's the part we, as men. You know, we don't never want to look weak. You know, we want to be strong. We want to have this, you know, personification that we're, you know, for me, I'm a you know, large guy. You know, people look at me like, you're strong, you're fine, you're, you know, all these things. You play college football, you know, all those things. And it's like, yeah, that's great. But, you know, I have emotions too. You yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I think it's just one of the things, just making that connection to that and um, just being more self-aware. Yeah. So definitely. For sure. Well, two great book recommendations, mm-hmm. and Coach Calhoun, it's been a lot of fun on the definitely, podcast today. Thanks, thanks so much for coming on, and um, hopefully we can get you back on here to to get some updates on how the spring season goes yes. for you with track and then football yes. starting up. So uh, mm-hmm. so hopefully we can stay in touch, and, nah. uh, and we'll see you on Twitter. No, nah, definitely. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> you. thank you for the invite, and definitely have enjoyed it and the conversation. So, yeah, no, definitely. Awesome. Thanks All a right. lot.